Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by. My name is Carol, and I will be your conference operator today. Welcome to the Fortis third quarter 2020 conference call and webcast. During the call, all participants will be in a listen-only mode. There will be a question and answer session following the presentation. At that time, those with questions should press star, followed by one on their telephone. If at any time during the conference you need to reach an operator, please press star zero. At this time, I would like to turn the conference over to Stephanie Amimo. Please go ahead, Ms. Amimo. Thanks, Carol, and good morning, everyone. And welcome to Fortis's third quarter 2020 results conference call. I'm joined by Barry Perry, President and CEO, David Hutchins, COO, Jocelyn Perry, Executive VP and CFO, other members of the senior management team, as well as CEOs from certain subsidiaries. Before I begin today's call, I want to remind you that the discussion will include forward-looking information, which is subject to the cautionary statement contained in the supporting slideshow. Actual results can differ materially from the forecast projections included in the forward-looking information presented today. All non-GAAP financial measures referenced in our prepared remarks are reconciled to the related U.S. GAAP financial measures in our third quarter 2020 MD&A. Also, unless otherwise specified, all financial information references in Canadian dollars. With that, I will turn the call over to Barry. Thank you, Stephanie, and good morning, everyone. If you participated in our virtual five-year outlook conference call last month, you know it was a busy third quarter for Fortis. Key highlights from our September 23rd call included the announcement of my retirement as president and CEO at the end of this year and David Hutchins' appointment as president and CEO effective January 1st, 2021. We also rolled out our new five-year capital plan, announced a fourth quarter 2020 dividend increase, and extended our 6% average annual dividend growth target through 2025. On the sustainability front, we announced a corporate-wide target to reduce our carbon emissions by 75% by 2035 compared to 2019 levels. Maintaining safe operations remains our priority. Our September year-to-date safety results were strong, with incidents tracking in excess of 30% below our three-year average. When you consider that historically we perform better than the industry averages, it's encouraging knowing we continue to improve our safety performance during the pandemic while working on our largest capital program in history. Operationally, our teams have worked diligently to deliver reliable service in 2020. Notably, in August, the ITC team responded to restore transmission service following the historic windstorm in Iowa. As a result, approximately 1,200 miles of lines were damaged by the storm, ranging from mild damage to towers laying on the ground. In response, the ITC team mobilized nearly 800 utility workers to rebuild the grid safely and quickly. I'm proud of our teams across the organization as they continue to deliver safe and reliable service, positioning Fortis to finish the year strong. With that said, let me hand the call over to David Hutchins, 
for an operational update and more detail on our new five-year outlook. Thanks, Barry, and good morning, everyone. As Barry noted, we continue to navigate through the pandemic, and our businesses are performing well. Our 9,000 employees have risen to the occasion. Whether they are working in the field or our facilities to maintain our critical infrastructure, or working from home to support our operations and customers. While our employees continue to provide reliable energy delivery, they have also improved our strong safety record, which remains firmly in the top quartile relative to industry peers. Employee safety and customer reliability is paramount to everything we do, and we couldn't be more thankful and proud of our teams across Fortis. In terms of sales, UNS Energy and our other electric segment have the most exposure to changes associated with the pandemic. Consistent with last quarter, we experienced higher residential sales, partially offset by lower commercial and industrial sales. In total, third quarter retail sales at UNS and our other electric segment increased by 3%. Record temperatures in Arizona contributed to higher sales at UNS, but excluding weather-related impacts, third quarter sales at UNS were still up 1% over 2019. For our other electric segment, sales were down 1%, driven by reduced tourism in the Caribbean. Turning to slide seven, our teams continue to advance our 2020 capital plan. For the first nine months of 2020, we invested 2.9 billion in our systems, which is 300 million higher compared to the same period in 2019. Our $4.3 billion 2020 capital plan remains on track. Last month, we announced an ambitious corporate-wide carbon emissions reduction target of 75% by 2035 compared to 2019 levels. This new target enhances our commitments to a sustainable future and provides our customers and communities with cleaner energy. While the majority of the target will be met through generation resource changes outlined in TEP's integrated resource plan, all of our utilities are developing plans to reduce their environmental footprints. By 2035, Fortis expects to have approximately 99% of its assets dedicated to energy delivery and carbon-free generation. Turning to slide nine, last month we rolled out our new five-year capital plan of $19.6 billion. The new plan reflects an 800 million increase from last year's plan and averages approximately 4 billion of annual investment in our utilities. The capital plan is virtually all regulated and consists of a diverse mix of highly executable, low-risk projects needed to maintain and upgrade our existing infrastructure. Only 15% of our plan consists of major projects having total costs of over $200 million. The remaining 85% is comprised of smaller projects required to maintain safe and reliable service to our customers. 80% of our capital plan will be spent in our electric utilities across North America and the Caribbean and 20% in our gas businesses in British Columbia, Arizona, and New York. This plan is expected to grow rate-based by over 10 billion, from 30 billion in 2020 to over 40 billion in 2025. This yields a five-year compound annual growth rate of approximately 6%. In addition to announcing the fourth quarter dividend increase of 5.8% in September, we also announced the extension of our 6% average annual dividend growth guidance through 2025. We have increased our dividend for 47 consecutive years 
and our strong growth plans and low-risk energy delivery business gives us confidence that we will continue this record. Barry, this slide has always been your favorite, and I look forward to continuing to deliver on this exemplary track record as the next president and CEO, and celebrating with you when we reach the milestone of 50 consecutive years of dividend increases in 2023. And I'd like to thank you, Barry, for your outstanding leadership and commitment to Fortis and our people over your 20-year career. Your accomplishments at Fortis have been extraordinary, and it has truly been an honor to be part of this incredible company under your leadership. You've been a great friend and mentor to me and so many on our team. On behalf of myself and all the employees at Fortis, I wish you all the best in your retirement. I'll now turn the call over to Jocelyn for an update on our third quarter results. Thank you, David, and good morning, everyone. Turning to slide 12, reported earnings per common share for the third quarter of 2020 was 63 cents compared to 64 cents for the third quarter of 2019. On a year-to-date basis, reported earnings per common share was $1.89 compared to $3.02 last year. Year-to-date reported EPS for 2019 reflect a significant one-time net gain of $484 million from the sale of our 51% interest in the Juanita expansion. Additionally, 2020 reported EPS reflect the impact of FERC's ROE decision received in May, including a favorable earnings impact of $27 million at ITC related to the reversal of prior period accruals. On an adjusted basis, EPS for the quarter was 65 cents, one cent lower compared to the previous year. During the quarter, EPS was tempered by a higher weighted average common share count associated with the 2019 equity issuance and lower earnings at ITC. Partially upsetting these items was rate-based growth across our regulated utilities and higher retail sales at UNS Energy, primarily due to warmer weather. On a year-to-date basis, adjusted EPS was $1.88 compared to $1.93 last year. While year-to-date EPS was impacted by similar items noted for the quarter, the overall decrease in EPS was also driven by regulatory lag at UNS Energy and COVID-19 impacts of approximately $0.05. The COVID-19 impacts mainly relate to the decline in tourism in the Caribbean and incremental pandemic-related costs. We do recognize the dynamics and associated impacts of the pandemic could change at any time. Based on where we are today, we expect the impact to be manageable for the remainder of 2020. Slides 13 and 14 provide additional details on the EPS drivers for the quarter and year to date. First on slide 13, our U.S. electric and gas utilities contributed a two-cent EPS increase for the quarter with our Arizona business and Central Hudson each contributing a one-cent increase. In Arizona, Tucson experienced its hottest summer on record, which resulted in an approximate three-cent EPS increase compared to last year. The increase was partially offset by higher costs associated with rate-based growth not yet included in rates. TEP awaits a decision on its most recent rate case, which I'll discuss shortly. In New York, Central Hudson increased EPS by a cent, driven again by rate-based growth. In our corporate and other segment, the two-cent EPS increase was mainly due to lower finance charges and operating costs. Our energy infrastructure segment contributed a one-cent EPS increase driven by increased production at the Belize 
hydro-generating facilities due to higher rainfall. As you might recall, Belize had been experiencing drought-like conditions since late 2018. Third quarter production returned to levels in line with average production over the last decade. EPS contribution from ITC was two cents lower compared to last year. Rate-based growth was offset by lower, a lower base ROE compared to last year and a lower effective tax rate in 2019. And although not depicted on the slide, earnings for our other electric segment were flat for the quarter. Higher equity income from Belize was offset by lower commercial sales in the Caribbean. And lastly, a higher number of common, number of common shares contributed a four cent EPS decrease for the quarter. Turning to slide 14, adjusted year-to-date EPS decreased by five cents compared to the same period in 2019. As you can see on the far right of the slide, a higher weighted average share account associated with the advancement of our equity funding in late 2019 was the main contributor of the decrease, lowering EPS by 13 cents. Going back over to the left, our Western Canadian utilities contributed a 4 cent EPS increase driven by strong rate-based growth and lower operating expenses partially offset by the impact of the PBR efficiency carryover mechanism recognized at Fortis, Alberta in 2019. Our energy infrastructure segment contributed a two cent EPS increase driven by increased hydroelectric production in Belize. Next, a higher US dollar to Canadian dollar foreign exchange rate favorably impacted year-to-date results by one cent. And at ITC, the one cent EPS increase was mainly due to rate-based growth and lower business development expenses, partially offset by the impact of a lower effective tax rate in 2019 and a lower base ROE. While decisions issued by FERC in November 2019 and May 2020 are impacting the timing of earnings delivered by ITC as compared to 2019, Earnings growth at ITC is expected to be generally in line with rate-based growth. In our corporate and other segment, the one cent EPS increase was mainly due to lower finance charges. The one cent EPS decrease for our other electric segment was mainly attributable to lower commercial sales in the Caribbean and timing of purchase power costs at Newfoundland Power, partially offset by higher equity income from Belize Electricity. Again, while not reflected on the slide, EPS for our U.S. electric and gas utilities was flat for the first nine months of 2020. The favorable impact of record temperatures in Arizona, as Dave mentioned, was largely offset by higher costs associated with rate-based growth not yet included in rates. Rate-based growth at Central Hudson was offset by an increase in operating costs associated with COVID-19. As a reminder, Central Hudson continues to track all COVID-19 related costs in conjunction with the generic proceeding initiated by the New York Public Service Commission. If regulatory recovery is achieved, this could be favorable to earnings in a future period. As you can see on slide 15, the bulk of our new five-year capital plan is expected to be funding with cash from operations and debt issued at our regulated utilities. Approximately 6% of our $19.6 billion capital plan is expected to be funding through our dividend reinvestment program. In conjunction with the release of our new five-year capital plan, we did announce the reinstatement of the 2% discount on our DRIP. We expect participation will increase to approximately 20% annually upon the discount being reinstated. 
We continue to maintain strong liquidity with nearly $5 billion available on our credit facilities. Our utilities have issued over $3 billion in long-term debt in 2020, highlighted by the issuance of our inaugural green bonds from our two largest utilities, Fortis BC and TEP, two of our largest uh, utilities. Fortis' funding plan and strong liquidity positions us well within our existing credit ratings as we continue to work through the COVID-19 pandemic and execute on our capital plan. Now turning to updates on some of our ongoing regulatory proceedings, in Arizona, the TEP rate case continues to progress. Hearings concluded in June and post-hearing briefs were filed in July and August. We expect a decision by year end. In August, Central Hudson filed a general rate application with the New York Public Service Commission as the current three-year plan concludes on June 30th, 2021. We expect a decision on this case mid-2021. In Alberta, we received a decision on the generic cost of capital proceeding in October. In the most recent decision, currently approved cost of capital parameters will remain in place on a final basis for 2021. The AUC is expected to commence a new proceeding in 2021 to approve new parameters for future periods. And lastly, Fortis Alberta awaits a decision by the AUC with respect to the Alberta Electric System Operator's customer contribution policy related to transmission investment. And we continue to expect a decision later this year. With that, I'll now turn the call back to Barry. Thank you, Jocelyn. So why invest in Fortis? It's simple. Fortis has a high quality portfolio of utility businesses across North America providing regulatory and geographic diversity. With our focus on energy delivery, coupled with our strong ESG profile, our growth platform is stronger than ever, supporting our 6% average annual dividend guidance through 2025. To wrap up my last official earnings conference call, I'd like to close by saying it's been an honor and privilege to have served the Fortis Group over the last 20 years. And to our employees, both past and present, Thank you for all your contributions through the years to make Fortis the strong company it is today. To say I am proud of the success of Fortis would be an understatement. Thank you again, and I look forward to watching the company continue this success. I'll now turn the call back over to Stephanie. Thank you, Barry. This concludes the presentation. At this time, I'd like to open the call to address questions from the investment community. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now conduct the question and answer period. If you would like to now register a question, please press star followed by the one on your telephone. If your question has been answered and you would like to withdraw your registration, please press the pound sign. If you are using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before entering your request. Our first question comes from Robert Kwan from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Good morning. Um, on uh, the the rollout conference call, Dave used the term gale force tailwinds, um, and you talked a little bit more about what it means for potential regulated investment. I guess what I'm wondering is, what's your appetite to take on unregulated uh, investments? Uh, can you talk about whether you do that standalone or would it have to be connected to your utilities? Do you see those types of investments as being enablers for you utilities, and, and if you're willing to take on unregulated, what types of contract terms uh, would you be looking for? 
Yeah, uh, thanks, Robert. I'll just jump right in and answer that, Barry. Um, yeah, th those are things that we're always uh, looking at, and, and we would we would obviously prefer uh, the types of projects that are tied to our regulated utilities in one manner or another. Um, in a purely unregulated, um, contracted energy infrastructure situation, uh, obviously we'd be looking uh, for you know the right kind of terms to put to put to put together a deal. Um, that manages the risk of a, of a, of a project like that. Um, things like Juanita, where you have the fully contracted offtake by a uh, creditworthy counterparty uh, come to mind. So things like that we'll always be looking at, but we're, we're not going to go out and take any um, you know, undue risk on projects like that. And, and geographically, you know, would they need to be you know, either in the footprint or contiguous, and, and would they, those investments would you want to see them being directly related uh, to your utilities, or could you be, get your head wrapped around being something that's you know, standalone in a different geography if it makes sense contractually for you? I, I think uh, all of the above. I think it, it, there are situations where standalone and geography outside of our utility footprints could make sense. Um, you know, that's, that's obviously something we would have to look at very closely. But if you look at our footprint, consider an ITC covering the Midwest, us in Arizona, you know, BC, Alberta, the Caribbean, um, you know, New York, uh, the, the, the Atlantic uh, area. Uh, we have a, a pretty broad footprint. Uh, I, I can't imagine us probably not doing one within at least an area that we have that expertise. Going out the area, going outside the areas where we have the expertise, or really, especially when you're talking about development projects, you need to have uh, the development expertise so that you can get it through the permitting uh, process and regulatory processes in those areas. On it, um, if I can finish with a question on on M and A, you know, historically you've had a consistent message in the last several years of really backing off um, larger scale transformational M&A, but just with a deal in your backyard, I'm just wondering if there's any additional commentary you can give. And you know, if you did decide to, to transact at some point, do you have a different approach to utilities as it relates to gas versus electric in light of the ESG slash you know, sustainability themes that are out there in the market right now? That, that's a that's a great question, Robert. And and uh, you know I know I've covered this a couple times in conversations, uh, both on the last call and uh, with the individual conversations with with analysts over the past uh, month or so. And you know M and A is, is is obviously always a part of everybody's uh, portfolio to look at from a from a, um, a fiduciary perspective. And that's something we'll we'll continue to do and keep in the background. But we're really going to be laser focused on growing our utilities organically. And we think that we have uh, a lot of opportunity to not only be successful in the 6%, you know, CAGR forecast that we put out from a rate-based perspective, but we think we have opportunities to grow that even more uh, over the next five years. Um, so I, I would say from a, from a gas and electric perspective, it, it all depends. It depends on the jurisdiction. It depends on the resources. Um, LDC uh, investments, like uh, you know, our great our great BC gas business out in British Columbia, those are really solid, rock solid investments. Um, and so we, you know, we, we would look at we we would look at everything, but not shy away from um, you know gas or, or electric uh, based on ESG. Um, obviously, that's a consideration, but that will also come down to valuations and the particular jurisdictions that those assets are in. 
That's great. Um, thanks for the answers, and Barry, um, all the best in retirement, and congratulations on, on your last call having to deal with us. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> Our next question comes from Ben Pham from BMO. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, thanks. Good morning. I had a question. There's some commentary around the belief equity income benefiting the quarter, and uh, you always have the hydrology and, and non-regulated. So, one of you, you can share some context on 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 really what's what's driving the the good results and belief uh, electricity. So, um, Ben, uh, maybe this will be the only question I'll answer today. <laughs> uh, you know, just for everyone listening on the call, uh, we have two businesses in Belize. One is our, our non-regulated hydro business that's called Decal. You know, and up until this last quarter, they were really struggling through a, some drought conditions that sort of uh, got uh, got much better in the past quarter. And, um, and then we also own one-third of the... Uh, electric distribution utility uh, in Belize. We used to own 70%, but as you know, a lot of history there, but we actually do own one-third of that. So we are picking up a, uh, a share of our earnings from that business in the quarter. Uh, Jocelyn, I, in terms of the amount, it's, a penny. it's about a penny a share for the for the quarter. So. Okay, and then maybe a broader question, the Atlantic Loop project being kicked around by the, the federal government's uh, probably early days with discussions went out, but is that is that something you guys get involved with directly or even indirectly downstream through some of your, your utilities? It's possible, Ben. You know, I think it's really early days. Uh, you know, you think about in Atlantic Canada, you know, we own the utility in Prince Edward Island. Uh, we also own Newfoundland Power, so so we're gonna you know we're gonna, we're going to have to be a part of this uh, this project, and we're open to that. And um, but it's still still pretty early. All right. Okay. Well, I'll leave it there. And also, Barry, want to extend my congratulations. Your early retirement the track record speaks for itself. So, I mean, thanks thanks for your your candor, your discipline, your proactive approach. Uh, uh, we'll surely miss miss you and. And David, congratulations. Uh, uh, just make sure you invite me to your, your VIP party and that 50-year dividend increase. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Will do, ben. Thanks, ben. Our next question comes from Linda Ezergalis from TV Securities. Please go ahead. Thank you. Uh, before I ask my bigger uh, picture question, I'm wondering if you have a sense of uh, kind of what the load trends are looking for um, including weather for the balance of this year. And you mentioned that the COVID impact for the balance of this year is manageable. But I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are, uh, including um, economic uh, fallout uh, of COVID for the outlook for uh, 2021 loads in your uh, key utilities. So, David, maybe I'll start. You can, uh, you can uh, uh, follow behind. Um, so, Linda, you know, fourth quarter is a bit of a strange quarter in a way because you're in Arizona, it's the shoulder period, you know, so so it's not typically a um, a big quarter for that uh, that business. Uh, you know, although October was a little hotter than than normal, I think, but even then, it's still the, in terms of load, it's uh, it's down substantially. So, so I don't see. Um, I mean, it's a bit early, but I probably don't see weather having a big a big impact on the quarter. 
you know, it is worrisome about the trends um, in terms of COVID and the amount of cases and the real possibility of maybe at a minimum targeted shutdowns and the possible impacts related to that. You know, I would say that's why it's so, so we're so, uh, I guess, fortunate to have these regulatory mechanisms that that protect uh, the revenues of the company. And when you add those together with the uh, residential sales, you know, we're at, we're 80 plus percent protected. So compared to many businesses, obviously, that's a very strong position. So I think, you know, the impact on the company will still be muted, even if there are really negative uh, economic impacts in 2021. David? Yeah, I just I just pile on on a couple of points there, uh, Barry, particularly down here in, in Arizona and what we've seen at our other electric utilities. Um, and I think we'll see it more in the gas utilities as we go through the winter. But the increased residential uh, sales volumes due to so many people working from home still, I think will continue to offset that commercial and, and industrial reduction like it has um, for the first, uh, I guess, seven or eight months of the of the pandemic, so uh, I would expect that sort of theme to con- to continue on through uh, 2021. And then it's really all about the commercial and industrial recovery and how the economy recovers, stimulus packages, uh, et cetera. So that that remains to be seen. Um, and as as far as uh, weather in Arizona goes, Barry is right. It was it was hot again in October, as everyone is is probably following the weather down here. Um, but uh, when we get into November and December, it, 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 the weather really doesn't become much of a factor because it can't, it can't really get too hot enough or, or cold enough to either turn on your air conditioner or, or your heater um, when, it gets to, uh, when it gets to those nice months we have down here, although it is quite pleasant to live here at, at that time. <laughs> Don't rub it in, David. <laughs> you can move there, Barry. Um, <laughs> So uh, maybe moving on to next week, um, how might we think of any sort of uh, changes in the White House administration and how that might affect um, FERC potentially? Um, There is um, an outstanding um, notice of proposed rulemaking on uh, transmission incentives policy. I'm wondering at the very least if that might be delayed in terms of uh, resolution or derailed entirely and wondering um, your thoughts on how priorities might shift either with um, the current administration staying uh, in the White House or any sort of change. If you can, if you can talk to some of those scenarios, it would be appreciated. Maybe I'll just offer a comment, and uh, David and Jocelyn, you can jump in uh, as well. It's just, you know, Linda, when we look at it, you know, how we've, you know, been really focused in the business of, you know, focusing on cleaner energy, uh, our, our sort of energy delivery business, transmission and distribution, you know, we feel that we're positioned well no matter who who wins the White House, frankly. And, uh, you know, we've been doing well under the President Trump's uh, administration. Uh, we've been growing growing the business. We've been hooking up more renewables. And, you know, the Arizona business has now laid out a pretty major move to, uh, to shut down and exit coal and, and move to renewables and storage. Uh, but that being said, if, uh, if the Democrats win the White House, you know, there is a you know, appears to be a real focus on maybe a faster adoption of renewables. That that's going to drive, uh, you know, renewable investment and transmission investment. So I, I think overall, uh, we're really positioned, probably one of the best in the sector, to uh, to have uh, good uh, good upside, uh, no matter what happens here. 
I don't think you're going to see a lot of change out of FERC. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, transmission is needed, right? For if we have a, a, a Democratic White House, um, you know, they're not, my belief is they're not going to slow down on making transmission uh, less uh, attractive. So, so I, I really believe, if anything, they may accelerate some of the some of the policies on transmission to make sure we can do some of the bigger lines, interconnecting the RTOs, you know, solving some of the seam issues and all that. So I, I you know, I, I think we're really, really well positioned. David, you want to add some thought? Yeah, I, I, I would add uh, just a, a couple of things there, Barry. Uh, I, I agree 100% on, on the view from a FERC perspective because I think either whether uh, either administration when they come in um, is going to be looking to stimulate the economy, and it may be slightly different how they do it. Uh, if it's a if it's if it's a Democratic administration, then pushing clean energy is I think going to really push what Barry was talking about is the FERC to really address uh, transmission incentives to be able to get the renewable energy both built and then connected and delivered to um, eventually all of our customers. And obviously having transmission uh, and distribution companies across uh, the U.S., that really is going to play into um, into our hands quite well. So I, I look at it from e either way. This is almost like a heads I win, tails I win, where the stimulus that even a, a continued Trump administration that would bring in would also, um, I think, have to have a large part of it uh, focused on clean energy. And uh, so I, I think um, either way, we're, we're, like Barry said, we're situated perfectly to take advantage of that. Thank you. And maybe um, uh, just one more question around your financing plans, recognizing that the capital markets could be volatile over the next little while and you've got the liquidity and the, and the balance sheet to kind of weather that storm. I'm wondering uh, what factors might be in place uh, for you to consider adjusting your financing plans, whether it be pre-funding in anticipation of uh, accelerated opportunities or maybe even other considerations driving um, a decision to um, look at divesting certain less core assets, uh, whether it be because of their ESG attributes and thinking of um, you know, maybe some that, that fall more um, into um, the heavier hydrocarbon side. Uh, et cetera, but, but how might you think about um, either pre-funding uh, or on the flip side, adjusting uh, your financing plans if you have more um, investing opportunities? Well, in the first, I'm going to restate that I'm just glad that we decided to advance our funding in 2019 for the plan that we see. If the plan that we see uh, unfolds, which uh, we're pretty certain about, then I don't see any change in the funding plan right now with respect, because we've done a significant piece of the equity funding for it, uh, again, which I'm quite pleased about. What could change it potentially is if we were successful in securing some projects, let's just say the Lake Erie Connector Project or further projects in BC. Yeah, we're, we, if, as we get closer to those, if we see that they're getting over the finish line, then you know we will definitely be having conversations about how to incrementally fund those extra capital projects. But I can't see, uh, based on what we know today, any real change in the in the funding plan that you see. We're set up quite nicely with, um, you know, with the progress that we've made on our balance sheet, and uh, so I don't really see any change. And will funding be the main driver of considering asset divestitures, or might there be other considerations? Linda, 
you know, in reality, as a, as a big public company, anytime like David talked about M&A, obviously not being our priority right now, focusing on organic growth. Uh, I think he said laser focused on, 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 on organic growth. But, you know, if M&A did come back on the table, uh, you know, Ford is, um, our mindset is that we really have to look at everything in terms of the funding for that, uh, for that opportunity. And that could mean some further uh, divestitures, if that made sense, if the value at that point in time uh, was attractive in the market. You know, when we sold the Juanita asset last year, it wasn't because we didn't like the asset. We love the asset. But when you're getting like 35 times earnings, for the for the asset, there was no question that we were going to sell it, right? So, so it's you know, it really is about you know what what the need is, what the opportunity you're pursuing is, and what the conditions in the market at that point in time for all forms of capital. So, you know, rest assured, I think uh, Fortis will continue to be a good steward of of capital, and uh, we'll we'll continue to look at all opportunities when we when we when we get the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, Barry, I just uh, I just add, uh, Linda, that th- this is exactly the situation we want to be in. We want our CEOs across the organization looking for growth opportunities, so we keep Jocelyn busy uh, on the funding side. That's that's what uh, growing organically is all about. So hopefully, we we keep her busy. Well, it sounds like you're going to be busy as well, David. Um, and I want to echo everyone's uh, congratulations to. Uh, to uh, Barry uh, on your retirement. Uh, wish you all the best and uh, all the best to uh, David as you uh, embark on this uh, new adventure uh, over the next little while uh, for a great company. Thank you, Linda. Our next question comes from Rob Hope from Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Uh, morning, everyone. Um, uh, you know, a, a bit of a broader question, you know, looking back over your five years as CEO, we saw some upside related to M&A. We saw some upside related to renewables. Uh, I guess the question's for David. When you look at the base plan you have in front of you, where do you see as the greatest opportunities for upside surprises versus the uh, capital plan? I think probably the, the biggest upside is, is, a, is a couple big projects that are sitting there on the back burner, like the Lake Erie Connector. I think the transmission uh, integration, particularly uh, around the corner next year, if there starts to be, as we talked about earlier, strong stimulus and clean energy, there'll be a lot of you know, wind in the Midwest, large solar projects that need to be interconnected to the grid through ITC system, big growth opportunities there. Um, and also in, in Arizona, uh, we have laid out our integrated resource plan that really looks over 15 years, and the vast majority of those investments are in the, in the last 10 years, not in this first five years. But there are some things that can happen that can either accelerate that or allow us to invest in additional or earlier uh, renewables and storage that can add to the plan as well. All right, that's helpful. And then maybe just a more kind of uh, regulatory focus question, you know, with continued low interest rates benefiting the valuations of your utilities, but, you know, how do you potentially push back against the uh, ROEs that we're seeing there? Or, you know, could you see, you know, lower ROEs offset by, you know, a push for, you know, greater equity thicknesses through the businesses? So, Robert, my I guess my advice, uh, I won't be here, but my advice is we just keep doing our jobs, right? We keep delivering cleaner energy, investing in our systems. And I think regulators um, have realized that utilities in North America have been really progressing um, 
of these big issues and making uh, making great progress. Frankly, you know, I you know we continue to see ROEs, especially in the U.S., being settled uh, around you know 975 for the state ROE levels and equity thickness. Uh, you know, 50 plus percent. So there is, a, you know, there's a little bit of pressure. I guess a, a few basis points here and there, but but you know, you know, even even in the last two or three months here, there's been cases settled like at 9.9 percent uh, with 53, 54 percent equity. So so we're not, uh, you know, we're not seeing that uh, that massive uh, pressure or anything at this point in time. All right. And then, yep, Barry, thank you uh, and uh, congratulations on the retirement. All the best, and David. Uh, uh, you know, all the best uh, in the future as well. So thank you, everyone. Thanks, Rob. Our next question comes from Mark Jardy from CIBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, maybe this question is for David. I'm just curious with the, the DER, Distributed Energy Resource Order of FERC, had that been in place when you guys did your IRP, how that might have impacted what you, what you put in place for TEP, or, or does it impact you guys in terms of how you're thinking about that decarbonization process in, in Arizona? Uh, Mark, it, it doesn't really impact us because we're not in an RTO. Uh, we are in the process of joining the California ISO's energy imbalance market, which is, uh, you know, kind of like being having a toe uh, in an RTO, but only on a very short-term market. So it, wouldn't, it doesn't really apply to our jurisdiction now, um, but just the, the overall things that that can provide or do from a market perspective, allowing um, the uh, aggregation of distributed energy resources, whether it be uh, electric vehicles, um, rooftop solar, um, you name it. I, I think that overall that's going to be good because it will add to the efficiency of integrating uh, a larger number of resources into uh, the system, which I think will end up flattening out. Uh, our load curves over time, which I think for any utility is, is always a goal because the flatter your load curve is, the better cost you can provide to your customers. So at the end of the day, if, if things like uh, uh, FERC Order 2222 uh, provides the market with better um, price signals, uh, better competition that, that flattens that price curve and load curve, uh, it's going to be good for, for everybody. Okay. Um, and then maybe we move to ITC, and you guys brought up some of the things like the SEAMS study and whatnot, integration, SPP, and, and uh, um, MISO. Just, just wondering what you guys think in terms of what could be the outcome for that and, you know, whether or not that, you know, your incremental outlook for new investments or, or what the role is, I guess, just for ITC and helping facilitate some of that, that work. Uh, Linda, are you there? Linda, did you get that question? Yes. I, yes, I did. Yep. Uh, Thank you, Mark. Um, yeah, as I mentioned before, I mean, we see a lot of opportunity in terms of the both the Generation Q at MISO in SPP, some of the recent, uh, you know, sort of announcements by both SPP and MISO to study the scenes issue. I mean, both RTOs, I guess, are suffering from the same problem, and that is they have over 200 gigawatts uh, of generation that's in their queue. Uh, it needs access to the market. Um, it, part of the problem is the, the process and, and how the study process is conducted. Uh, but ultimately, the bigger problem is that there's just a lack of adequate transmission and transmission capacity. And so standing back, I think it's premature to specifically know or say um, how that translates in terms of uh, potential capital investment. 
However, uh, I think it's also safe to say that there is no doubt the only way to fundamentally solve uh, the Generation Q issue um, is to have substantial, you know, increase in transmission investments. So from that perspective, uh, yes, definitely I, I see that as, you know, kind of a, you know, one of those longer term uh, upsides in terms of how we think about uh, our investment, our footprint, both in ITC Midwest. Uh, and certainly Michigan, as well as uh, Kansas. And so we would see those all as positive. Okay. And maybe just one other question is just on if, if there is a, a sort of a blue sweep in, in Biden administration and, and they move towards incentives, tax incentives for storage, like they've the incentives we've had for wind and solar, just wondering what you guys think the impact would be across some of your U.S. businesses, like Tucson Electric and Central Hudson and ITC in terms of any storage incentives, tax incentives. Sure, I'll, I'll jump in there. I think the storage incentives would be uh, much preferred to incentives related to, uh, say, solar and wind because it is something that needs to to get moving a little bit quicker. It would provide us, as, as I mentioned earlier, on things that could accelerate some of the investments that we're looking at from an integrated resource plan perspective down here in Arizona. Um, some of those could be accelerated because batteries are getting cheaper uh, quicker uh, through the use of incentives. So um, I, I think that could provide an additional growth opportunity for us. Uh, distributed um, uh, storage, I think, is also a, a big play from that FERC 22-22 conversation that we just had as well. And by distributed storage, I mean things that we can put within our distribution grid as investments of the utility that can balance uh, the, the load um, on, on our distribution feeders, which we're going to need more and more of uh, as we go forward. So uh, I think that it would be a, a very positive outcome if we had incentives related to storage. Okay. Thanks for those answers, and uh, happy retirement, Barry. Thank you, Mark. Our next question comes from Elias Foscolos from Industrial Alliance. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Uh, two questions um, that I've got. Uh, first is uh, sort of following up on the theme of laser-focused organic growth. I'm going to try to word this properly. Um, what would be the, the probability or um, the chance that we could see one of the two major projects uh, moving forward over the next uh, year? And, and if you don't want to answer that, maybe what could we look at to give us uh, a feel that that might be uh, that those might be progressing. Um, yeah, well, it, it's probably a little early to, to to comment on those too much. But when you when you're talking about over the next year, um, and obviously um, the focus on stimulus uh, across uh, both uh, north across North America, both the U.S. and Canada, some of those projects I think and I hope will get. Uh, pushed to the front of the queue there, you know, particularly Lake Erie Connector being fully permitted and, and basically ready to go, just needing, you know, contracts and for us to finish out how we're going to uh, actually, you know, build that and, and uh, have, a, have an off-taker. If we get that solved, um, then, you know, we're, we're ready to go and we've got a, a three-year construction period and that drops right into the next uh, five-year um, capital plan. So uh, we're, we're continuously looking and we'll, we'll update those and keep you updated every quarter on the progress 
uh, on, on those big projects that we have in the hopper. And I think uh, it will be really uh, interesting once we get past this election and see uh, what the next administration pri administration's priorities are going to be. I think we'll have a better view of that come Q1 of next year. Great. I, I appreciate that color. Um, one, you know, I'm going to make this maybe a micro question, but, but I'll ask it anyway. If, if we look at UNS and, and we try to separate the warmer weather from the costs associated with uh, the increased assets, is, is it possible, maybe in a cents per share or millions of dollars, to, to quantify that? Um, uh, Jocelyn, do you want to answer that? I can, but yes, I don't know I if you want me to answer it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I certainly can. Um, when you look at lag, as we said, we have about um, we have 700 million U.S. of assets that are not included in TEP's rate. So for the quarter, we said substantially the three cents was offset by, by lag. There was about a penny for the quarter. Um, when you look at on a year-to-date basis or if you look annually, I think if you do the math, you take your 700 million U.S., you fund it 50%, you're earning 9.5% return, you can come up with probably five pennies, it, what, would, what I would qualify as regulatory lag. So um, that's everything else remaining equal, of course, Elias, but um, that's sort of how we look at what the lag is for UNS. Yeah, and a key, I would say my only addition there is that, you know, every day that goes by, it keeps increasing, right? Because you are, you are continuing under the historical test year approach, you're continuing to invest in the business. And so this, this test year is 2018, right? So, so, you know, this is resetting rates. With, and, and we do have some post-test year adjustments and stuff like that. But, but uh, you know, we need to get these rates in place, get, a, get our rates brought a little more current, but even then, you know, there will be some additional lag uh, already because we've, we've been investing capital since that period of time as well. Great. I, I appreciate that color. I'll uh, leave it at that. And uh, to closing off, wish uh, both of you uh, congratulations on your respective paths. Thanks very much. Thank, Thank you, Liz. Our next question comes from Julian Dumoulin-Smith from Bank of America. Please go ahead. Hey, uh, good morning, team. Thanks for the time. And uh, I, I should echo at the outset here, uh, congratulations uh, once more. Uh, kudos indeed. Um, Thank you. If, if I can here, just I want to go back to where we kind of started some of the conversation and we, we've heard throughout. Listen, we've seen NextEra get larger with respect to Gridlions, right, and really starting to push a bigger, call it potentially mega transmission effort here. Obviously, that goes hand-in-hand hand with their specific specific renewable efforts. How do you think about leveraging the ITC platform for potentially larger projects right outside of the traditional planning processes and SVP and MISO to look at something beyond admittedly what you're, you're already talking about with Lake Erie? Um, and especially if, if I can emphasize this, how does that fit to the extent to which it does with some of the illusions you made to earlier about investing um, or at least being open to contracted renewables um, as a further vi uh, venue for growth. So, Julian, imitation is the best form of flattery, right? Uh, so the totally. fact that uh, the next era wants to own lots of transmission and see it as a, a big growth engine in the future just makes, uh, makes me smile because we do own the best damn transmission company in the U.S., and uh, I'm really proud of that. And 
So I, you know, I, but I, I agree with Jim Robo. You know, I think uh, I think transmission is going to be, uh, uh, you know, to use a common term, huge going forward. So, uh, so you know, Linda, Linda, Linda has described some of the reasons why that is the case, and uh, you know, clearly I can only marvel at the success of Nextera and all that. But uh, but when it comes to transmission, we're far ahead, and uh, we're proud of that. Um, so, so yeah, no, I agree. Uh, you know, Grid Alliance clearly um, has a collection of some small assets, and um, you know, they they will, I'm sure, uh, do well under under Next Terrace leadership. We will continue. Uh, David and Lynn, I know, will continue to look for opportunities on transmission. But you know, we have an amazing footprint. We have 16,000 miles of transmission in the U.S. US Midwest. Uh, I keep reminding folks, you know, that's enough to go across Canada from here in St. John's, Newfoundland to Victoria, British Columbia, five times. You, know, you think about the, 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 the massive piece of infrastructure that that is. Uh, so, you know, that's going to continue to drive ITC's growth and Fortis's growth for a long, long time into the future. Got it. Maybe you can address just how, how to the extent to which you see opportunities beyond the typical the, the, the planning processes here to, to, to leverage larger projects on the transmission side to enable renewables. Is that something you would see? Because I, I, don't me wrong, I hear what you're saying about a huge opportunity. I'm just curious if that's something in the near future we should be watch, watching for. Linda, do you want to add some color? Yes, yeah, sure. Thanks, Julian. Look, yeah, I mean, we, we talk about it often in terms of our investor materials in terms of sort of where the sort of future or potential incremental uh, capital opportunities lie. And, and, you know, look, you know, I always say, you know, if we want, if, if we want to move to more and more renewables, um, you know, we have got to harvest the wind, you know, from where the wind blows and harvest, you know, the solar from where the sun shines. And, you know, those are predominantly two parts of the country that does not have significant transmission investment. So if you look at a lot of the planning efforts that are ongoing, both within SPP as well as MISO, you know, essentially they all sort of come back to the same principle, and that is, you know, taking a longer-term outlook in terms of where are the future resources, and, and in part that's informed by the significant generation queue in both of those RTOs, um, and, you know, sort of looking at, you know, what type of transmission investment infrastructure, you know, do we need um, in order to facilitate, interconnect uh, all of those renewable resources. And ultimately, I mean, the, the, the answer is not a couple of projects here and there. It's significant transmission projects. Um, that are essentially interconnected, that essentially would build, if you will, you know, the equivalent to regional transmission infrastructure. So those, uh, by definition, will be large transmission projects. And so we are very optimistic, given, you know, kind of the, the current situation, what I think is going to be a, a continual movement towards more and more renewables. Um, as well as much of the planning efforts and the dialogue and the discussion within the RTOs and FERC, for, as a matter of fact, um, that opportunity is there. You know, I think just as we know, um, transmission policies and changes take time. Um, and, you know, but I don't think it's a matter of if it will happen. I think it's a matter of when it will happen. 
And so we are pretty confident that um, you know, we will realize future investment in transmission around the context of large transmission infrastructure projects. All right, fair enough. Thanks, guys. And again, best of luck. Thanks, Joy. Our next question comes from David Cazada from Raymond James. Please go ahead. Thanks. Morning, everyone. Uh, maybe just one quick one for me. Um, I understand there's an election coming up uh, at the ACC in Arizona. I'm just wondering, um, I mean, it certainly seems like renewables are, are a bipartisan support kind of topic, but is there any potential for shifting priorities there depending on how those elections shape up? Hey, uh, David, uh, it's good to hear from you. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll take that one, Barry. It's in, in my backyard here. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't really think that uh, there will be any loss emphasis um, on shifting to renewables, whether uh, what, based on the outcome of the ACC election and who, who's, who's in the uh, commission seats. I think at the end of the day, um, we're all pulling in the same direction. We've got uh, energy rules that are really close to getting approved by the current sitting commission, which is uh, four Republicans and, and one Democrat. And I think when we round the corner into next year, uh, the energy rules that, that this commission puts in place, and maybe they'll get them done by the end of this year, they're getting very close, will be both uh, reasonable and, uh, and doable so that us as utilities in, in the state are, are able to manage a, um, a reasonable transition to a, a cleaner energy future here in Arizona. So I, I, don't, I don't see that changing. I, based on our integrated resource plan, to, 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 be, really, to, to re be really direct, our, our integrated resource plan won't change based on who's, who's at the commission, and I think um, they'll look at it the same and think it's a great plan uh, and will approve it and help us execute it. Excellent. Thanks, David, and I'll echo everyone's uh, best wishes to yourself and Barry going forward here. Thank you. Thanks, David. David. Our next question comes from Andrew Kuski from Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning. Um, obviously, you've had longer-term involvement in smaller-scale hydro, but really stayed away from mass renewables for, for, for quite a period of time. So I, I'm just wondering if you get to this tipping point where you know the costs don't really need subsidies at this point in time, does that change the mindset and you go more into renewables, wind, solar, other things, or is your horse in the race really on the transmission side? Uh, Andrew, I'll, uh, yeah, ahead, I'll, I'll take that one. Thanks, Barry. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it's it's all of the above. I think we're 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 going to focus on large renewables, and we'll have to focus on large renewables down here in Arizona. That's a key part of our integrated resource plan. When you think of adding, you know, we're going to have a thousand megawatts of renewables on our system by the end of next year. Need to add two thousand more and a thousand or fourteen hundred megawatts of uh, energy storage. I mean, we we are going to have to go big. Um, we're hoping to get as much of that as possible into the regulated rate base. Um, and as we become uh, more familiar and, and uh, in not just building renewables but uh, integrating them, uh, we, we'll, we'll be looking at ways that, that we can do that um, across the rest of our utilities. And uh, like I mentioned er earlier, if there's the right opportunity for contracted energy infrastructure and renewable storage, et cetera, um, you know, that's not something that's off the table. 
Okay, great. And then maybe just a nitpicky question, whether it's for, for Jocelyn or, or for Linda, it's just on ITC and, and you know, I noticed that the OPEX is down. What, what's just happening on that front? Um, if you could just give some color, that'd be great. Linda, why don't you offer your thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, our, our O&M expenses down. I mean, we took some early actions um, early on uh, in the pandemic uh, when we saw the significant uh, economic downturn back in March and April when sort of essentially all businesses were down. As you know, uh, our regulatory rate construct is a pass-through uh, of all of our O&M expense. And uh, given the economic impact, uh, certainly the impact that that may have on our customers and ratepayers, we took early action to significantly curtail our O&M spending uh, for the benefit of our customers. And uh, happy to say that, you know, we have, uh, you know, I believe year to date, we, you know, we're about $33 million reduction in our O&M expenses. And as you know, that's just a straight pass through. Every dollar we don't spend is a dollar we don't uh, collect, but essentially it has no, uh, no earnings impact uh, for, for ITC. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. Our next question comes from Patrick Kenny from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Yeah, good morning. Uh, just on Fortis, Alberta, your main peer in the province is experiencing a step down in their capital budget, at least this year, to the tune of about 25%. But looks like your capital plan is holding quite steady. So maybe you could just share your thoughts on you know, why your Alberta rate-based growth profile, albeit 3%, um, being the lowest CAGR in the portfolio is still relatively resilient, you know, despite the continued pressure on the uh, the local economy. Thanks, uh, Pat. Um, Michael Mosier is on the call. Um, Mike can offer some thoughts on that. I, I always remind people how large of a system we own in Alberta. You know, we it's uh, like a hundred thousand kilometers of line, mil, a million poles. The system itself, you know, does require a significant amount of annual investment to make sure that it operates in a reliable way. Uh, so that drives a lot of that CapEx. But Mike, um, can you offer your thoughts? Sure, Barry, thanks. And I would totally agree when just, while we have seen sort of reductions in customer growth, we still have customer growth. And as Barry said, we operate a massive distribution system and we are just the, obviously the only distribution only company in Alberta. So as we serve that last mile, we still have lots of investment to make in sort of modernizing our infrastructure. We're still deploying um, a lot of sort of distribution automation schemes that are delivering significant reliability benefits to our customer. We've improved reliability by 25% over the last five years. So the capital that we have while the growth has subsided, uh, we still have quite a runway. Okay, that's great. Thanks for that. Um, and then shifting over to BC, so following their provincial election, um, just wondering if you see the majority government, you know, really putting its shoulder into various clean energy policies going forward. And if on the back of that, you know, we might see any near-term CapEx upside related to whether it be investing in more electrolyzers or perhaps other landfill infrastructure related to boosting RNG production? Uh, thanks, Pat. Uh, Roger, uh, I'm going to pitch this one over to you, uh, but Pat, just to, again, offer some comments. You know, Premier Organ is uh, 
very familiar with our our space and uh you know even when he was in opposition he was the energy critic and he understands the value of our of the gas uh, distribution business we have in British Columbia uh so i'm i'm hopeful that uh, we can continue to work with the provincial government there um you know on on their clean energy pathway and i know Roger and his team have got some really excited opportunities that can uh that can really help uh, get the economy going as well in, in British Columbia. Roger? Uh, thanks, Barry. Uh, I think the, uh, the further to Barry's uh, response, the, the trend for the, the NDP will be uh, more renewables. I, I think they were pretty clear in their election uh, platform that they're going to be looking at the, uh, the net zero target that's being talked about federally, so I don't think there will any lessening of the focus. Um, we've had some good discussions with uh, the government over the last couple of years on advancing uh, marine bunkering as, as a clean uh, investment strategy for uh, the, the marine sector. Uh, we are in discussions with them on uh, renewable natural gas and hydrogen. So I think uh, from that perspective, uh, it'll be business as usual. I don't see uh, uh, any change from there. So I think we will have some opportunity as far as near-term capital I think these things take quite a bit of time as far as the uh, the planning and the execution. So while we'll see continued and uh, increased support for the trajectory we're on, uh, I'm not sure it's uh, near-term capital, but definitely over the long term. Okay, thanks, everybody, and uh, all the best in retirement, Barry. Congrats. Thanks, Patrick. As there are no further questions, I would like to turn the call back to Ms. Amimo for any closing remarks. Thank you. We have nothing further at this time. Thank you for participating in our third quarter 2020 results call. Please contact Investor Relations should you need anything further. Thank you for your time and have a great day. Thank you for participating, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference, and you may now just connect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.